Well, the 2008 blockbuster hit movie, The Dark Knight, directed by Christopher Nolan, is known for its unbelievable cinematography, the plot twists, and the star-studded casts. Not only that, but the quotes are just as memorable as the action scenes. One of the famous lines comes in the, the closing scene when Commissioner Gordon says to his son that Batman is not the hero they deserve, but the hero they needed. And yet he's sent on the run from those in Gotham City. They don't deserve him, but it's so obvious that they need this hero. Now this quote resonates with the state of Israel at this point in the book of 1 Samuel. Because what we'll see is that the people of Israel desired a king. They got a hero, but it wasn't the king they needed, but most certainly was the one that they deserved. Year after year, they reject God and do whatever they think is right in their own eyes. They're the kings over their own hearts. And so God gives them Saul. He isn't a king after God's own heart, but a king like all the nations. And so the Israelites' desires press us this morning to think about our own desires. Because we know that our desires give us a window into the depths of our hearts. So what do we desire? What do we crave? Or rather, who do we desire? What stirs our hearts each day we wake up? And for what end do we live and breathe? My prayer this morning is that the foolish desires of the Israelites, the unworthiness of King Saul, and the beauty of the promised king, the Lord Jesus, will cause us to be those who know the king, Cling to the king by faith and live for his glory. And so with that said, open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And while you turn there, we have three main points that we'll be looking at this morning. Number one, the desired king. Number two, the anointed king. And three, the worthy king. So follow along with me as we start 1 Samuel Chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now chapter 7 left us off with Samuel as the last great judge. And as we saw last week, he was faithful to God. And, and he saw as the Lord single-handedly defeated his enemies. But suddenly, there's a shift here. Chapter 8 places us down the corridors of time to the end of Samuel's reign. So as Samuel gets older, he places his two sons, Joel and Abijah, as judges over the people. But there's a big problem. They aren't like their dad. No, they're a bunch of crooks. Verse 3 tells us, that Samuel's sons did not walk in his, Samuel's ways, but turned aside after gain. They take bribes and they pervert justice. So what's the fallout? Well, the elders of Israel, they recognize that these judges 
are unhelpful, and they initiate a request for not another judge, but a king. Now, this is at the point in the narrative where we instantly should be shocked. Awe should fall over us. How are they going to possibly ask for a king? Well, we need to start with just understanding that this demand isn't coming out of left field. No, God has actually already planned. He's already promised a king back in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Just listen to this language from Deuteronomy 17. God says, I will set a king over me like all the nations. You may not put a foreigner over you. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne, he shall write. He shall write in a book a copy of this law, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of the law and doing them. For the purpose that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments, so that he may continue long in his kingdom in Israel. So this king doesn't have tons of wives, doesn't have excessive amounts of money. He's to physically write God's law for himself. He's to read it all of the days of his life, and he's to keep the law. He's to obey God. Right, So the Lord always planned to provide a king, one who was a man after God's own heart, both delighting in God's word and God's will. So then what's the problem with B, Israel's demand for a king? Well, they desired the wrong king with the wrong motivations. Look with me at 1 Samuel 8, verses 6 and 7. The author writes, But the thing, the request, displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So Israel's demand for a king isn't well received by Samuel. Clearly, he prays to God instantly when he hears the request, and God answers, doesn't he? God says, obey their voice. Let them be. I'm going to give them a king. You see, right here in this moment, God is giving them over to their desires. Just look back at what God says to Samuel in verse 7. They have not rejected you, Samuel. No, they've actually rejected me from being king over them. So the issue that we see here isn't that they ask for for a king. The issue is that they demand the wrong king with the wrong motivations. Their desire for a king is short-sighted, outwardly oriented, and altogether worldly. Right? Their demand says more about their persistent rejection of God throughout the ages rather than it does about their desire for a figurehead for the nation. God was to be their king. That was the plan. Now, how do we know the Israelites' intentions? How do we know that they're persistently rejecting God? Well, let's just think about what happens next. Right in verse 10, Samuel obeys God. He communicates to the people. He basically says to them, your wish is God's command. They're going to get a king like the nations. But then Samuel comes out with this warning to the people. And we see that clearly in verses 11 through 17. And the key word that Samuel uses in this one warning, the key phrase is that the king that you so desire will take. Verse 11, the king will take your sons. Verse 12, 
The king will take your commanders. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take your fields. Verse 15, he will take your food. Verse 16, he will take your workers. Verse 17, he's going to take your livestock. And then verse 18 comes. And in that day, you will cry out. Why? Because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, you would have hoped that Israel would reply saying, Lord, we hear what you're saying through your great prophet, your great judge, Samuel. We hear you. These kings will take, but you give and you give and you give. That would have been a wonderful response, wouldn't it have? We would be pretty pleased with a response from the Israelites like that. But how do they actually respond? Verse 19, they say, no. There shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us, go before us, and fight our battles. Now just listen to the cravings of their hearts. Listen to what they desire. They want a king who looks impressive, but not a king with a heart that's after God's own heart. It reminds me of the 1879 voyage of the USS Jeanette. An explorer named George DeLong rest, uh, rested his expedition of the North Pole on a picture showcased in the imaginary maps of Dr. August Peterman. No one knew what the North Pole looked like. They had no concept of the pathway through the ice, but Peterman's wonderful map was drawn up to explain what it might look like to find a gateway through the ice of the North Pole, opening all the way to the top of the entire world. Right, so DeLong and his crew were headed to a world that didn't exist, following an imaginary map of what could be. And so as perilous ice surrounded the ship, the explorer had to shed his romanticized ideas about what a pathway might look like and to actually replace them with the reality of the situation. There's ice everywhere. There is no pathway. Now, DeLong and the Israelites are quite similar. They, they placed their hope of life and survival on what the eyes of their hearts told them where they'd find success. Israel trusted imaginary maps of what they thought was best for them, when in reality, God as king, what was always what was best for his people. So when the Israelites demand a king like all the nations in rejection of God as king, they no longer desire to be God's distinct people. Right? They were a holy nation. They were a royal priesthood. They were to be set as lights for all the world to see the glory of God. And now they declare, I'd rather have a king like all of God's adversaries. You see the folly of their desires? It's short-sighted, it's outwardly oriented, and it's altogether worldly. Now let me ask you, What do you desire? What do you crave? Or how about this? Do your desires shift when life seems difficult? Do your desires shift when you think you have life under control? J.D. Greer once said, this is our problem just as much as it is Israel's. It's never easy to trust God. It's never easy to desire him when everything you need for life is right in front of you. When you just can see it. When things seem secure. 
when the kids are doing well, when money's in the bank, when the birds are chirping and everyone is smiling and singing kumbaya. But when one of those things is missing, when one of those things is taken away, when it starts to slip away from our grasp, what happens? The anxiousness sets in. Right When difficulty rises, the doubt starts to come about. There's a temptation to lean on ourselves rather than trust in God. That's what we see with the people of Israel, isn't it? When they need a king, they look inward. And so when God seems distant, they can't see his hand. And so what do they do? They muster up a king they can see, touch, and control because they don't fully trust God. So what drives your desires? Are you driven by comfort and control? What drives your desires? Is it worldly standards or God's design? Prowess or God's preeminence? Your image or God's? Your satisfaction apart from God or satisfaction in God? So the Israelites' worldly demand is answered with God's provision. And that's what we see in point two, the anointed king. But as we've seen, they aren't given the king that they needed, but the king they most certainly deserve. We aren't introduced to Saul, who is a king that worsens over time. But what I want us to see is that in chapters 9 through 11, we find a man who's anointed as king, but is A, a worldly king, B, a wandering shepherd, See a lethargic leader, and D, an empowered Benjaminite. So A, a worldly king. Look at chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacharath, son of Ephiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Right, so we're introduced right off the bat to Saul. And how the verse begins can seem to be ordinary to us. But it is chock full of critical information for us to understand the man who is the main character in this portion of scripture. And it tells us that Saul's a worldly king. It's just as the Israelites had hoped. So let me just highlight a few of the key ideas from verses 1 and 2. First, we see that Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, which isn't a great way to kick off the introduction because the Benjaminites were associated with corruption, rape, and murder. Right? They aren't, the, they aren't known as the goody two-shoes tribe in Israel. Not at all. The last three chapters of the book of Judges tells us how the land of the Benjaminites is known as Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0. And not to mention, we know that, the, that according to Genesis 49.10, the rightful king is to stem from not Benjamin's house, but Judah's. The scepter will not depart from Judah's hand, not Benjamin's. Right, so being from the tribe of Benjamin isn't a display of humble beginnings. But it actually highlights the problems that we are going to be unearthing in the future chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. Second, he's from a wealthy family. Third, he's handsome. And fourth, he's taller than any other Israelite. So Saul appears to be the answer that people were looking for. I mean, come on, he's tall, dark, and handsome. 
He's gorgeous. Which is contrary to what God looks for, isn't it? 1 Samuel chapter 16, 7 says, The Lord sees not as man sees. He doesn't see as the people of Israel do. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So this introduction has everything to do with Saul's outward physical appearance, which purposefully places a major red flag over Saul because Saul's a mirror image of the Israelites' desires. He's a king like all the other nations. He seemingly got it all together. He's a worldly worldly king. Not only is Saul depicted as a worldly king, but he's be a wandering shepherd. Just look at verse 3. It says, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. Right? So Kish, Saul's father, sends him, Saul, and this servant out into the wilderness to go find his donkeys that are missing. And just notice what happens in verse 4. They get up. They travel throughout the hill country of Ephraim. They go through Shalisha and the land of Shaliam and pass through the land of Benjamin. And the text tells us three times over and over again, they did not find the donkeys. Saul and the servant can't find these donkeys anywhere. So their haphazard route has them all over the place. They not only look in different parts of the territories, but they even double back through Saul's homeland. And so our first encounter with this man, Saul, identifies him as a shepherd who can't find his father's donkeys. He's a terrible shepherd. It's just pure comedy. How do you not find donkeys? Literally, a pack of donkeys throughout the country. And to make matters worse, what does this bad shepherd do? Verse 5 says that he wants to call it quits right in Samuel's backyard. So he doesn't ever want to find the donkeys. He just wants to go home. So at this point, the only one in the narrative who wants to keep looking for the donkeys is this little servant. And he seems to have far greater clarity than Saul because unlike Saul, the servant knows who lives in the land of Zuf. And he suggests that they speak with the seer. That's Samuel. It's Samuel's homeland. And so Saul and the servant, they banter back and forth. And Saul says, I didn't bring anything for the man. I don't have food for the man. I don't have a gift. And at the end of the exchange, the servant, who clearly wants to seek after Samuel, he offers to give his money to Samuel so they can continue to find these elusive donkeys. And of course, Saul agrees. You're paying? Great. Just grab a hold of the facts. Saul lives just five miles from Samuel. Not to mention, they literally traveled to his hometown of Zuf, and yet Saul's completely ignorant of the prophet's existence, which is pretty hilarious because in chapter 8, what did we just see? All of the elders of Israel come and ask Samuel to ask God for a king. So all the elders of Israel know about this man, Samuel. Who doesn't know about Samuel? Saul. But it goes deeper. Saul had to be told by a servant that a prophet could help him. And even then, Saul assumed that prophets needed to be hired to perform their divine task, right? Give them gifts, give them food, give them money. This is the soon-to-be king of all Israel. And it's clear Saul isn't an adequate shepherd for donkeys, and he will not be the necessary shepherd of God's people. 
And yet we continue to see God's provision and God's forbearance, don't we? Verse 15 says, The day before Saul came to see Samuel, the Lord revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the land of the Philistines. And that's exactly what happens. Saul strolls into Samuel's land. God makes it clear to Samuel that Saul's the one who will be anointed. In verse 27, he makes known to him the word of God. So Saul's a wandering shepherd who meets Samuel. And as Saul's anointed king privately, he's told of the wondrous task he's been given. He's to be God's king who is commissioned to save God's people from the hand of their enemies. But as wonderful as all that sounds... Saul neglects to trust God's promises, which is what we see with Saul's A, lethargic, or C, A, lethargic leader. 1 Samuel 10.1 says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb. Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. And after that, you shall come to a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart and all these signs came to pass that day. Right, so what we're listening to, what we are reading is Saul's private anointing as king by the judge Samuel. But notice there's great hope for Saul. Right? He's going to be anointed. He's anointed over God's heritage, over all of God's people. Not only that, but the Lord has provided signs, specific signs, to solidify the fact that God is for his king. Which is then, of course, demonstrated by the Spirit of God rushing upon him to do the work that he could never do in and of himself. Right? The language of God giving another heart, Spirit rushed upon him. And so with that, we just want to be clear about what is taking place. God is giving his king supernatural power. Right? Just look at how that takes place in verses 9 and 10. These verses tell us that God gave him another heart, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. So I just want to pause for clarity because these verses are confusing. Right? So the question should be going off in our, in our minds. How should we understand that Saul was giving, given another heart? But we can't understand this in light of our understanding of the New Testament, right? Recognizing the, the, the doctrine of regeneration. That is not what's happening here. Saul is not re a regenerate convert. He is not a believer in Jesus. Saul is not given a new circumcised heart. That's the promise that's granted by God under the new covenant. So a more helpful translation would be that his heart was turned or it was as if he was a new person, behavior, outwardly speaking, for the people of God. And so when we read that God's spirit came upon Samuel, it's really no different than when the judges were empowered to conquer God's enemies. All the way through judges, you hear of this empowerment that God places upon his people to do good work on behalf of them. And so with that, 
Verses 17 through 27 then highlight our great problem that we have before us. He's an empowered leader, but he's also lethargic. He's lethargic to God's promises. And how do we know that? Well, first, think of all we have heard about Saul's private anointing. The spirit rushes upon Saul. He's empowered. He's promised to overthrow the enemy. He should save God's people. There are many signs displaying that God is for him. And then we come to Saul's public anointing. Verse 18, Samuel declares, Thus says the Lord, The God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So every tribe in Israel gathers at Mizpah, and lots are cast to choose who the rightful king will be. It's as if they are picking straws for this new king. And it just so happens that the scrawny tribe of Benjamin is chosen, and Saul's name is announced. Verse 21, Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? Now pause. All of Israel's here. You have thousands thousands upon thousands of people in attendance at Mizpah. Everybody's waiting to hear about the king, and no one can find this guy. No one can find this large Man, handsome as anything, taller than anybody in the entire crowd, and he's not to be found. Where is he? Right, let me just ask you the question. How on earth do you lose a man who is head and shoulders taller than everyone else in the entire country? Well, you lose him if he's hiding. You lose him if he's ducking for cover, which is exactly what happened. Verse 23, God says he has hidden himself among the baggage. How hilarious is this? I just think of the sweetness of God. No one can find him. God does. God finds him. It's hilarious. Congratulations, your new king is hiding as if his life depended on it. Now some will say, look how noble Saul is. Look how humble. He's the humble one who's going to be exalted as the king. No, no, no. Let's be very clear this morning. Saul's nothing but a coward. Saul's a coward. He always has been and he always will be. He's lethargic to the promises of God. He knows what God has declared. God has empowered him. God has promised that he would be the one to shepherd the people. God has promised that he will save the people from the hand of his enemies. And all Saul hears is the Charlie Brown teacher. Womp, 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 womp. He wants to hide far from what God has commanded. That's not a king after God's own heart. That is not a king after God's own heart. That's a king like all the nations. That's lethargy. Sleepiness to what God has promised. Just recognize the deadliness of this lethargy. In our passage, this sleepiness to the things of God is a mark of unbelief. 
Lethargy calls us to believe the lie that thoughtlessness about God and his word is satisfactory. And if I'm to be honest, lethargy in our hearts is not out of the question. Sadly, as Christians, we can become sleepy to the wonders of God. We can become uncomfortable with the truth of difficult doctrine when having gospel conversations and just decide not doing it. We can settle into comfort and ease rather than courage, especially as we are a 300-plus person church. Right? I don't need to serve. Somebody else will do it. I just want to sit here and chill. We can grow complacent in evangelism. Meeting new people, discipleship, spiritual disciplines. We can assume all is well with other members while they lie in puddles of tears behind the veil that covers their homes. Lethargy, sleepiness, shouldn't be in the vocabulary of Christ's blood-bought saints. We must fight against sleepy hearts and minds. We need to be people who champion God's word and his work, increasingly aware of our sinful hearts and the abundant need to live every single millisecond of our lives for the glory of his name. And so specifically, if you're a member here at Proclamation, out of love for you, pastorally speaking, I want to call us to wake up. Let us not be lethargic people to what God has commanded us to. Let us be people who champion our great salvation in Christ and live fully for the glory of God. So Saul is the anointed king. But as we've seen, every step of the way to his anointing only continues to provide signs that this king is an unworthy king. He is unfit for the crown which is exactly what we see once again in chapter 11, D, an empowered Benjaminite. Right? Just look with me at chapter 11. What we find is that king, the king Saul, King Saul, is successful. He has his first military victory, which takes place because the Ammonites and King Nahash lay siege on Jabesh Gilead. And so those in Jabesh ask for a peace treaty. And so what does the king of the Ammonites do? Well, he completely disrespects and dishonors Israel. The only way he's going to sign a peace treaty is if every single one of the people from Israel gouges out their right eyes in order to dishonor them. Gotta love the Bible, don't you? Now, how do you think King Saul responded? Was well, any empowered, spirit-empowered king would, right? He goes to war with these people. And just as Samuel's warning from chapter 8 told us, Saul took from all Israel those who were able to engage in combat to defeat the Ammonites. So Israel experiences deliverance. The empowered king saves God's people out of the hands of their enemies, just as was promised. And they live happily ever after. Nope, that is not what happens. Here's the problem. Israel's victory demonstrates God's mercy by empowering King Saul to fight for God's people. But this empowered king is still a Benjaminite. He's still from this lineage. Just look at verses 6 and 7 to see what I mean here. It says, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took oxen and cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. A couple things to highlight. 
In verse 6, the Spirit of God rushes on Saul. He's empowered and righteously angry. Israel's not going to be mocked. And so Saul takes some oxen. He cuts them into pieces, sends them throughout Israel to press the Israelites to fight against the Ammonites. This should cause us to pause. Verse 7 raises another red flag about the unworthiness of King Saul because he showcases himself as no different than the rest of the tribe of Benjamin in the book of Judges. I just think back to Judges 19 and 20. What did the Benjaminites do? They raped and murdered a woman, divided her body into 12 different pieces, chopped her up, sent her out to every single tribe in Israel. And what city did all of that take place in? Gibeah. Here's a really important detail. Gibeah is Saul's hometown. Gibeah is Saul's hometown. Right, so when we hear chopping up oxen into pieces to be sent throughout Israel, we should be thinking of Judges 19 and 20. It's a recapitulation of the tribe's horrific past. So every single Israelite, after this is written in 1 Samuel, they're all going to read this and they're like, uh-oh, this is very similar language to what was said in Judges. This isn't a good sign for the people of God. This isn't a good sign for this king. This displays, once again, he's unfit. This is pointing forward. This isn't going to go well. This king is not a king after God's own heart. This king is a seed of the serpent. Now, what's my point? Well, our introduction to King Saul in 1 Samuel 9 through 11 tips its hand to the reality that this king is unworthy. He is unworthy for the crown. Saul's not the king that the Israelites need, but he is the one that they deserve. But in just a few chapters, we hear of a lowly, humble shepherd boy, one who finds the sheep, one who fights for the glory of God, one who stands up for God's people. But we're going to see that King David, although he's far greater than Saul, he falls short. He's just a man. He's a sinner through and through. And so throughout human history, there has been a need for God's king. There's still a question of where is God's triumphant king to rule and reign? And if it was up to us, we would still be picking kings like Saul. Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, doesn't he? And adjusts at the right time. At the perfect time in human history, God sent his precious son, the Lord Jesus, as not just another king, but as number three, the worthy king. And so to see this, I want us to turn to Luke chapter one. So go, go ahead and move forward to the New Testament, Luke chapter one, because I want, to, want you to see the worthiness of this king. Right? This is Zechariah's prophecy prior to the birth of Christ. And I just want you to hear how this prophetic praise declares the great deliverance that's going to be accomplished through this worthy king, the Lord Jesus. So we're going to start in chapter 1 of Luke and read in verse 67. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Look down at verse 79. And to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You hear Zechariah's clarity? He's speaking of a king that's coming. He knows that God has redeemed his people. He raised up a king who delivers. That's what he's praising. Verse 71, a king that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And so verse 71 emphasizes very similar wording that God has already and always promised to his people. This king is going to come to save. Where is he going to come? He's going to come and save us out of the hands of our enemies, out of those who hate us. It's all over our text even this morning in 1 Samuel. Chapter 9, verse 16. Chapter 10, verse 2. Chapter 10, verse 19. So when Zechariah prophesies of God's king, he speaks of the worthy king who will come to accomplish what these men never could. A king who saves. A king who was sent to earth, lived the perfect righteous life that we could never live. The king who came anointed by the father himself as the beloved son in whom he was well pleased. And he then died a substitutionary death for sinners. The king who rose from the dead victorious over sin, death, and the devil. The king who never cowered, was never lethargic to God's promises. A faithful shepherd and a warrior to save God's people from the hands of their enemies. Jesus is the worthy king we never deserved and yet he is the king we most desperately needed he is that king brothers and sisters and he must not be rejected some of you may hear what I'm saying this morning and hesitate to believe what you need most is life in Jesus some of you may think that you need more money. Maybe you need more friends, more influence, more Instagram followers. But that is a lie that this world loves to tell you. Here's what you need. You need this king. You need this king. So don't reject him this morning. Do not harden your heart like the Israelites so please understand me when I tell you, if you reject King Jesus, you aren't just rejecting another king. No, you're rejecting God. Do not be so foolish. And so I appeal to you to turn from your sin. Recognize that you can't save yourself and the things you think you need can't possibly satisfy you. You cannot do this in and of yourself. You must treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. Know him truly. Cling to him by faith for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. That you would know the king. That you would see his goodness and mercy. And you would glory in the worthiness of who he is in and of himself. So if Jesus is the king, and he is, then all those who cling to him by faith are also those who live for his glory. 
So B, live for the king. Now, what does that look like? To live for the king. What does it look like to respond to the king as a follower, the one, one who loves the king? Well, it looks like one who lives to the glory of the king, not treasuring other things, not treasuring others above Jesus. No, faithful subjects to Jesus are those who do all things for the glory of God. Just think about 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul writes, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all things so that God would be made much of, that God's excellency would be on display. So in how we think, how we act, how we live, right? We are living, breathing testaments to the beauty of God's work in us and for us. We've got a king who came and has made us new in Christ. And so therefore, every fiber of our being is meant to be to the praise of the glory of God. Every single fiber of our being. Every coffee sipped. Every Bible story read. Every hymn sang. Every thought crafted, every hammer swung, every car driven, every test graded, every word typed, every word spoken is all to be done for the glory and honor and praise of the king. It begins now and will echo throughout time and eternity as seen in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Do you catch it? Glory is what he deserves. Honor is what he deserves. Praise is only what God deserves. So let's recalibrate as we close. Our hearts are to resound in the praise of the king. Do you actively look to exalt your name or the supremacy of the king's? Why do you breathe? What drives you to wake up? If you haven't caught anything else from this sermon, please catch this. Jesus has always been the promised king who came to seek and save the lost. And he alone, he alone is worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. He's worthy. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that the king is worthy? He most certainly is. Allow me to pray. Father, we thank you for who you are in and of yourself. That there is no lack. And so Lord, as we contemplate the reality of what you have done throughout space, time, and history, we know that you have provided a great Redeemer King for sinners and rebellion, rebel, rebelers like us. Lord, we thank you that you have conquered the wickedness of our hearts, that you've given us new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now with our very lives, we not only cling to the Lord Jesus, but we are called to live for his glory. And so we do pray that we would do just that. That our lives would be a living sacrifice for the sake of the King. That we do all that we 
uh, do for the sake of your name, that we would be those who declare that you are worthy, that you are worthy of all worship, that you are worthy to be honored and magnified for all days in our lives now and as we know throughout, throughout all time in history. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.